It's an invisible line that surrounds each and every one of us that dictates a lot of how we live our lives or what we experience. You can't see it for the most part. It didn't grow there. It didn't get built in most cases, and it usually has very little to do with geography. But if you try to cross this line without following the rules, well, you're likely going to jail. And the interesting thing about this is that it depends on whose imaginary line it is that will shape the trajectory of your immediate future. Borders, an imaginary division of land and sky. Borders are are a gateway to adventure, discovery, even vacations, but they can also be aggravating, arduous, and problematic, particularly if you don't follow the rules or maybe aren't aware of them. And with things beginning to open up from this pandemic, we find ourselves once again finally looking to leap over borders and explore. So today we're going to talk about border crossings, and we're also going to get some tips from a former customs agent on uh, that will give us sort of an insight into how you can cross the border more effectively and reduce your risk of any issues. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Payne. Bill Bragu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Grant Johnson is the co-founder of Horizons Unlimited, the original online portal for overlanders. Grant spent years traveling around the world by motorcycle with his wife, Susan. In fact, it's it's how and why they started Horizons Unlimited. And today, Grant still spends almost every day helping organize HU events all over the world. The Horizons Unlimited website, very popular with overlanders, has a forum on it that deals with all kinds of travel-related issues, including border crossings. Now, Grant himself has dealt with all kinds of border crossings on his travels by motorcycle. He still does it when he's traveling around, but he's also experienced many more vicariously through the anecdotes on Horizons Unlimited and the people that he meets at the events. Here's Grant with some great info on border logistics. Grant, let's start with what is a border crossing? What does it entail in an overall sense? Basically, when you change countries, every country has several concerns. One of them is that you're not a terrorist, you're not a bad guy, and that you're not trying to enter the country to work, and you're not going to stay. And if you're bringing a vehicle with you, and this is where it gets sticky, that you're not going to leave it behind. Because if you leave it behind then they miss out on the taxes that they like to collect when bikes or vehicles are imported into the country. So you've got to deal with all of those concerns that they have. And remember that they're not really 
welcoming you into their country because they want you there. Their focus is keeping the problem people and problem vehicles, et cetera, out. So there's a, a, a different focus than we would like to think. We would like to think that they really want to welcome us in, but it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's an interesting point because um, it's, it's easy to believe that, that they're there sort of welcoming tourists in. So with this focus, then they're focused on us as a person. They're focused on our machine. How about our packs and what we're bringing in? Yeah, they look at that too. Um, I've crossed, I, I couldn't count how many borders I've crossed, but I've only actually had my stuff inspected once oh. in all that time. Mind you, it was a very thorough inspection and they looked at every single thing. Uh, but how, and how you deal with that is, is an important thing. But uh, mostly they just want to know who you are, why you're coming, when you're leaving, and if you've got a vehicle, where is it going to go? And are you taking it with you? And that's the important things that they care about. What do we need? So when we're planning our, our border approach, in an overall sense, what are the basics? First off, when you arrive at a border, you want to arrive there fresh and early and not tired at the end of a long day, 10 minutes before they close. Because that's just a recipe for disaster. Um, some borders close at 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock, whatever they feel like. When it gets dark, it depends. So you need to have some kind of an idea of that. But you need to be prepared so that you physically are ready to spend the day there if necessary. There are borders where you will spend the day. There are borders where you could spend two days. So you want to be fresh, ready to go, a bottle of water at least, maybe a sandwich, something to carry you through if it takes a long time so that you aren't tired, frustrated, hot, and going to get yourself into all kinds of trouble. Um, you need to have your paperwork ready. Don't to have the paperwork buried nice and safe at the bottom of a saddlebag or your top box. Have it ready in your jacket, ready to pull out, hand it out, organized, and no excess bits of paper that they don't care about. Now, all they really want to see is your passport, registration for the vehicle, and that's really about it. Some countries, they'll need a carnet. You've got to have to have that for some countries, but we can talk about that later. Um, they don't want to know about anything else. Keep it simple. Uh, and I think that's a very important mantra for border crossings. Keep it simple. Don't, don't get carried away. Don't talk about stuff that they don't want to hear about. Answer their questions and just answer the question. I think that's really important. It's very easy to uh, get carried away and, and tell them too much. They don't want to hear it. They don't care. And you might say something that they want to hear. And that's bad. Yeah, I was going to mention that sometimes um, when we rattle on, we bring up other questions that never would have come up otherwise. Yeah, I'll give you a really good example. An American who lived in Dubai, had a Harley in Dubai, was registered in Dubai. It was a Dubai vehicle. He flew it and himself to the U.S. for a vacation for a month. He wanted to ride his own bike around the U.S. And when he arrived... He was chatting away and he said along the way in the conversation, he said, you know, what if I wanted to sell my bike while I'm here? Red flag. They freak out. It's you don't have a carnet. You're not you, you're trying to sneak the bike in. You're doing something illegal here. You shouldn't do that. You can't do that. And by the time he ran around and around and around, 
it was six weeks before he got his bike back. Oh, so an innocent question, Oops. just making conversation where works out to be your nightmare. Yep. Nightmare. Don't do that. No. If you're going to ask that question, ask long before you get there, know the answer and be fully prepared to deal with what you want, whatever it is you want to do. But don't ask questions that you don't need to know the answer from right now. You need to know, where do I go next? What paperwork do you want? And that's it. So we start off fresh and early. That's a big thing. We have all of our paperwork organized and ready. Um, we definitely keep it simple, as you said. Now, how do we approach this? What's the best approach? Clearly, we, we don't want to talk too much. We want to keep it simple. I've heard some people say one of the best ways to do it is to arrive at it, you know, and, and play a little dumb and, and be very smiley and happy. What's your opinion on that? Yep. <laughs> I don't know about the, the play a little dumb, but I, I think that's, that's certainly a valid approach. What they really want is for you to go away. Okay, so the easiest way for you to go away is to give them exactly what they want. Be prepared, clean piece of paper. Uh, if some, some borders they want multiple copies of various things, have multiple copies ready. Have everything photocopied. Uh, a number of the Central American borders, for instance, they want four or five copies of everything. So make sure you've got those prepared, ready to go. Um, so you hand them what they want. They go stamp, stamp, stamp. Yep, you're good. Poof, you're gone and they're happy. If you're a problem and you're too dumb, then it starts getting drawn out and it's no longer simple. It's getting to be more of a pain in the butt. And you don't want that. You want it simple, quick, and easy. And the better prepared you are, the better it is. Having said that, you can arrive at a border that you haven't got a clue about. And as long as you are prepared, ready, you've got your basic documents, they'll whip you through there as quick as they can. Just do what you need to do and be prepared as best you can. So we have everything ready. We're keeping it simple and, and really you almost want to appear a fly on the wall. You want, you want to be that type of person that doesn't look interesting, but you don't really look uninteresting. You just sort of nonplussed as you go through. Yep, absolutely. I, th I think uh, a lot of people arrive at a border and after they've done a couple of borders, and again, Central America is a classic example of this. After you've done a couple of Central American borders, you know this is going to be hard. You know there's going to be lots of running around. You know they're going to want five photocopies, and the closest photocopier is five blocks away through the town at their cousin's store, which has the only photocopier in town. So you got to go there, and you don't have the right kind of money, and you got to get the money changed somewhere. And you go around and around and around, and it's really frustrating. So when you arrive at the next border, you know you're going to be frustrated. But you have to, to step back and say, you know, there are two approaches to this border. I can go into it and know I'm going to be frustrated because I know I'm going to be frustrated because that's what a Central American border is. It's an exercise in frustration. Or I can say to myself, you know, this is going to be interesting. I wonder how many people I'm going to meet, where I'm going to have to go, and what kind of strange and weird processes they've managed to work out in order to extricate every possible penny from me and keep as many people in the border town paid and occupied with a job as possible. So this is going to be an interesting and fun day. And I'm going to approach it with that attitude and I'm going to be prepared. I've got my stuff together. I've got my water. i got something to eat. And this is going to be fun. And if you do that, it is fun and you can have fun and you can smile and shake hands and, and be friendly 
or you can take the other approach and, and go into it with, this is going to be a horrible day. I'm going to be really frustrated and I'm going to get all pissed off and angry and ah, it's going to be horrible. You know, which would you rather do? Make it fun or have a bad day? I know which one I'd rather do. Some people are using local fixers. What's the pros and cons here? Is it something we should be doing or not? To a certain extent, you're going to end up using fixers. You can get away without them, but it can take a lot longer. You have to be very, very careful with fixers because their real focus is not on helping you get through the border. It's on how much money can I make and how much money can my friends make? So you have to negotiate in advance with your fixer. How much is this going to cost me exactly? And make sure that they understand that's all they're going to get. Uh, if there's any, you need to say, if there's any fees that come up along the way, how much are they? How much do we have to pay for everything? I want to know the complete cost up front. And then you, you really want to be able to look in your uh, hidden wallet, uh, your money wallet and say, well, I've got this much. And yes, I can pay you that, but that's all I've got. So if you have an idea of how much it should cost in advance, that helps. So you don't show them how much money you've got total. You've got how much money you have prepared to pay for this event because you've heard about how much the fees are. And uh, you don't want to have too much money available because they will come back at the end and say, oh, there was an extra fee for this and that, and it's going to cost an extra $200. No, it doesn't. So you have to be prepared for that. Is it safe to pay them in advance or should we be waiting till Wait the till end? the end? Wait till the end because they will always come up with another fee for something else at the end if you're not careful. Um, and at the end, if they have said it's going to be $50, for instance, at the end of they say, oh, there's an extra fee for this, an extra fee for that. Well, you should have known that. You didn't tell me, so I'm not paying it. I'm giving you what you told me it was going to be at the beginning, and that's it. And pay them that and walk away. They can yell and scream, but it doesn't matter. It's generally an area where you can get taken advantage of using a fixer? Very often, yes. Very often. Um, some borders are worse than others, but I don't know. I'm always of, of mixed minds with fixers. Sometimes you really do need them because you just can't figure it out. It's, it's very difficult. Um, the average Central American border, there's always a fixer available. You really don't need them. You can do it without them. If you pay them too much, then they just get greedy and they want more from the next traveler and more from the next and more from the next. So everybody that pays them too much is just causing grief for everybody else. So you have to be very careful you don't overpay. Um, and your next border, of course, is going to be worse because of the guy that was there before you that paid too much. So you have to be careful. Um, some of the Arabic borders um, into Egypt, for instance, a fixture can be very useful. Having said that, it can be done without, but it will still take all day to get into Egypt. Um, if you don't have the language at all, like, yeah, a fixture can be useful. It just depends on how, how much effort you're willing to put in. Like I said, with the, it's going to be an interesting day or it's going to be a horrible day. It's going to be an interesting day and it's going to take a little bit longer if you do it yourself. But the advantage of doing it yourself is you did it. You made it through. You figured it out. They've not charged you excessive amounts. You haven't paid for a fixer. You've only paid what needs to be paid. What sort of things can we expect or that we may expect at a border? Well, the number one thing is when the fixers arrive and start crowding around you, if it's a real problem, you, you try and get rid of them. You try and say, I don't want any help. I'm okay. But if they become really a problem, 
then you have to pick one. And as soon as you pick one, that gets rid of all the rest. And then you, because his job is to get rid of the rest because he's now got the job. So the rest give up and they go elsewhere. So he'll get rid of them. So that saves you a lot of aggravation. Um, but then you have to negotiate with him how much it's going to cost and what you're going to pay. As I said earlier, be very, very clear that you get it down to what exactly the right amount and not pay too much. The next step without, without a fixer or even with a fixer is where do you start? Well, unfortunately, it's not a nice, simple lineup like booth one, booth two, booth three, booth four. You wish it was. And I've only seen that once in the entire world. It was a border crossing in, I think it was into Chile. It was absolutely dead simple. Booth one, you hand them your papers. Booth two, you hand them your papers. Booth three, you hand them your papers. Booth four, you hand them your papers. Tick, 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 and you're out and you're done. It was like 10 minutes. It was very simple. Egypt, for instance, is a, think of a large compound. You could probably park 500 cars in it. There's ratty old buildings scattered all over the place. And you have absolutely no idea where to go for anything. There's no signs. There's the odd little word here and there in Arabic. Everybody's wandering around, milling about, trying to figure out where to go. Nobody knows anything. Where do you start? You know, it's, it's, it's really daunting. What do you do? So you try and find somebody in a uniform and just look kind of dumb and wave your papers. And they'll point you in the right direction. I remember going into Egypt, walking in. Remember the old bank tellers where they had the, uh, the bars in front of the window? So in order to get in, think of 40 or 50 people all yelling, every one of them with their papers in their hand and all of them crammed up to the counter, trying to reach over the person in front of them to wave their papers in front of the guy that's sitting behind the desk. Oh my God. (laughs) I took one look at this and went, oh, where do I start? Oh Lord, this is not going to be fun. Um, Fortunately, I'm a little taller than the average Egyptian, and I just leaned over farther than they did. And what this guy was doing was he would deal with papers, stamp them, put his hand straight up in the air, and the appropriate hand would grab the papers and leave. And then he would grab the next piece of paper that was as close as possible to him in front of him, and he'd deal with those. That was how it was done. No lineup, no nothing, just next And I leaned over farther, put my papers closer to his nose, and he took them, dealt with them, handed them back, and I was out of there in minutes. Compared to some guys, I think are still there because they're short. (laughs) It's it's just crazy. Uh, I've got a great story about a couple of Germans who are, shall we say, sticklers for doing it the right way. And they arrived at the border, I think it was into Chad in Africa, and... They pulled up to the border, went through the first steps, and the guy said, $10. And they said, it's, it's not $10. There is, there is no fee. We checked. There is no fee for this border. $10. There is no fee for this border. $10. And they go around and around a little bit, and the guy was adamant. It was $10. That was what it's going to cost you each to get through the paperwork. And they refused to pay. Three days later, they gave up and paid. Well, you know, that says something about them. That three days, that, that is a couple of determined oh, people. Oh, yes. Very determined. <laughs> there is no fee. There is no fee. But yes, there is. 
And you can tell when it's a legitimate fee and when it's not because you hand him the $10, he opens the drawer, slides it into the drawer, and closes the drawer. Done. That's it. That was a bribe. That was his paycheck. A lot of these border crossings, you have to understand that the pay is very poor. They may not have been paid for two months. And the way they get along, the way they feed their families is collecting a little bit for every traveler that comes through. And while we don't condone bribing and we would really rather you didn't, sometimes that's the only way through. You have to be tough and you have to know, I want a receipt. And asking for a receipt will often make them say, okay, don't worry about it. You can go. You can go. You're, you're a tourist. You can go. Um, but sometimes that's just the way it is. So are the bribes fair? Are they, are they level across the board? Or if I come in in a, my fancy you know, BMW suit um, riding a very expensive motorcycle, am I going to pay more than the guy who's uh, you know, riding the C90? Not if you're smart because it, they will try and get more. And they will always ask for whatever they think they can get out of you. And the fancier you look and, or the bigger your four by four, for instance, the, the more you're going to, uh, they're going to try and collect out of you, but it's all comes down to negotiation. Um, you say, I can't afford it. Sorry, I haven't got it. Or I haven't got the right money. Uh, I don't have any local currency. And then they say, Oh, we take us dollars. You say, Oh, us dollars. I used all those up. I've only got, well, I got $1 left. And you pull out your lonely tattered $1 bill and, That'll do. Very often they need something. It doesn't have to be much. Take a look around you and see what the locals are dressed like and how much money they're likely to have and understand that they probably get through for peanuts, whereas you're the rich traveler, so you're going to pay more, but not much more. A while back, I was interviewing someone, I can't remember who it was, but they mentioned about um, about having a satellite phone. We were talking about communications mm-hmm. and um, they said, what's a satellite phone going to do? What are they going to do? Phone their mom and say, you know, I'm having a problem. It's like, no one can help you at that point. So, so you're at the border and everything starts to go pear-shaped. What do you do? It depends what you call pear-shaped. Um, as long as you have the right documents and it's very important that your documents are not expired or, and they're not going to expire, um, your driver's license is legitimate, the bike's registration is correct, you've checked your serial numbers and made sure that the serial numbers on the bike and on the uh, registration documents are correct. If you're using your car name, make sure all the numbers match. Everything has to be good. And if everything's good and you haven't done anything stupid like opened your mouth when you shouldn't have, um, it's going to be fine. It's very unusual for anybody to get tossed in jail at a border crossing for doing something wrong, crazy, bad, whatever. Let's talk about money for a minute, the money exchange and and traveling with money and cash versus credit cards, those sorts of things. But let's talk about traveling with money first. That's a tough one to deal with. You know, we want to take cash with us, of course, but what do you, what's some tips that you have for that? Definitely carry cash. U.S. dollar is the norm for, um, all of North and South America, you can, you're going to use it everywhere. The euro for large part of Europe, of Africa is the currency of choice. But for most of the rest of the world, it's the U.S. dollar. So you always want to have you know, a few hundred dollars at least in U.S. dollars. Um, a lot of people think that carrying $1,000 is a good thing. And one of the advantages of carrying $1,000 in cash is that no matter how pear-shaped things go, 
You can always walk to the airport and buy a ticket out, leave everything behind, but you can get out. So if things go really pear-shaped, you can get out. And that's all that really matters. So having some cash handy is good. Now, you need to make sure that it's spread around a bit so that if uh, somebody's stealing or trying to break in or trying to rob you, they're not going to get all of it. So you want to spread your money around in multiple different places. Um, one important little tip is don't put it near your battery. We had one couple who'd been traveling for three years. They got to somewhere in the middle of Africa and they'd used up all their money and their last batch of money was in a Ziploc bag underneath the battery. Well, yes, they pulled out the tattered Ziploc bag and the bundle of charred black bits of $1,000 worth of cash and kind of, well, I think they were a little upset to say the least in the middle of Africa and that was the last of their money and the nearest money is quite a ways away and they don't have any money in the bank anyway. So what do you do? Don't put your money near the battery. That's a really important lesson. Yes. Anywhere like that. I mean, you, I guess you really have to think about where you're going to put it. Uh, now, do you think it's safe to discuss some, some ideas for places to store it? Or do you think that maybe is something that's better left to a smaller venue? There's a, there's a million places on motorcycles to stash money and every bike is completely different. Um, the old airhead BMWs had a tube underneath the gas tank and you could put all kinds of things underneath the inside there and then cap it off. But yeah, there, there's so many places on bikes that you can stash money. Um, you can put money in three or four different places on your person. Um, I know one pe person who likes to put his money in his really smelly boots. He says, nobody goes near my boots. <laughs> nice. Okay, so just spread it around a little bit here, a little bit there. Everybody knows about the mugger's wallet. You need two wallets. One is what we call the mugger's wallet. And that's the wallet when somebody points a gun at you and says, give me your money. You give them that one. And that one has the two expired credit cards and 40 or 50 bucks. That's it. You give him that. He takes it. And he runs. He's happy. But you also have your real wallet stashed. In fact, maybe you don't even have an actual wallet, but you have money and credit cards stashed somewhere else on your person. And the purpose of the mugger's wallet is obviously to get rid of the mugger. He's not going to check the credit cards and make sure the dates aren't expired. He's going to see cash. He's happy. He's gone. You also have to have some other money. And that's not going to be enough money. And you have to have current credit cards. So you stash those on you. And the only time you go to those places where you have your extra money stashed is in your hotel room where nobody can see you. During the day... When you're out wandering around, going to the market, buying odds and ends, you're using the mugger's wallet and the cash in it for today's purchase. Because as you're buying something from a local market, the mugger is standing around the corner watching you and watching where you pulled your money out from. So when you walk down the street and he accosts you and wants your money, if you pull out your mugger's wallet, that's the one he's seen you using. That's, as far as he's concerned, the money. So if you've been in the market using your regular wallet and then the guy walks up and says, give me your money and you try and hand him this special wallet that you pull out of another pocket, he's going to already see that you have another wallet. Now he's thinking there's two and he's, he's really going to end up with both of them, isn't he? That's right. You don't, and you don't want to do that, of course. So you need to make sure when you're out that you're always using the mugger's wallet. That's your daily wallet, your usable, your use every day wallet. That's the wallet as far as you and everybody else are concerned. 
but you have the real amounts of money and credit cards stashed somewhere else that nobody else ever sees. Right. And you don't keep any ID or anything in that wallet. Expired ID, copies of ID, fake ID. It's good to have a, a photocopied driver's license in that wallet. A couple other bits of uh, ID or something, uh, a photocopy of the registration for the bike. He gets a fat wallet. He thinks, yep, that's the wallet. That's the money. And he's happy. Okay. You don't want it to be too slim. If it only has some money and two card credit cards on it, you know, he's going to go, nobody has a wallet that skinny. Come on. Where's the real one? Right. So you want to make this thing look as legitimate as possible. It is legitimate, except that it's expired credit cards and there's only a little bit of money in it and it's all copies. And it's nice when a policeman stops you, which they can do in some parts of the world, and demand to see your passport and identification. So you pull out your wallet and you show them your photocopied driver's license and you, you show them the, your passport because you have to use the real one for that. Um, but most of it is copies. Traveling with uh, cash versus credit cards, clearly you, you, you need a mixture of both. Can you get by with just cash and without credit cards? Sure, if you can carry enough, but uh, you're going to have to carry so much that you're going to be really nervous all the time about getting robbed. You're going to have to get cash out sometime and you're going to use an ATM. Uh, virtually every country in the world has an ATM machine that you can get local cash out of. Iran being one of the few countries that you can't, that's very difficult. I think there's a couple of cash machines in Tehran, but otherwise forget it, there is none. But virtually everywhere else, any decent sized city is going to have cash machines and you can get cash out in the local currency or very often they have local currency or U.S. dollars available in a cash machine. So why do a money exchange then? Why meet a person on the street and buy money from them? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you don't need to do it too often, Very, but where you do want to do it is when you leave a country, you may have too much money left over from the previous country and you want to get rid of it. Mm. And often in the next country, they don't want it. So you try and get rid of it. Um, some countries, some parts of Africa, the cash machine may be in the capital city only, and that's 500 kilometers away, and you got to get there. So at the border, there will be guys that are going to do cash exchanges. And that's okay, but know the exchange before you enter the country, because they will try to rip you off first crack. And if you are dumb enough to say, okay, that sounds like a good exchange rate when you really have no clue, you're going to get taken. So just know the exchange rate. As far as hiding the cash on our bikes, we want to take the obvious precautions. We don't, don't want to put it near the battery, which is what you said. Uh, we want to keep it away from heat or any sort of chemical. Um, yep. And obviously where it's not going to be found and wear as well. Like, I mean, because uh, even stuffing is something beside a battery that vibrates around can certainly wear away bills. So that's a big concern. For sure. There's lots of ideas. Um, there's lots of places to put things. You'll always find something interesting, somewhere unique. And every traveler I've ever talked to that's shown me where they hide their money. And some, some do because of who I am. And they say, oh, I've got this really cool place. And I say, yeah, that's interesting. And there's lots of interesting places to hide money. And every bike's so different that there's always going to be somewhere. Just underneath a piece of duct tape. That'll do. Yeah, just winding some electrical tape around a, a frame bit. You know, you've, you've got something there and it can look like it's holding wires down. Yep, that'll do fine. Or duct tape. I know of some guys who used uh, duct tape on their fuel tank where the knees rub, but underneath there was a Ziploc bag with some money in it. That works. Nobody would ever think to look underneath a bunch of ratty old duct tape, would they? We're going to step back here and talk about the border crossing. You mentioned Carnet, about having a Carnet for your motorcycle. So let's talk about that. What is a Carnet? 
when you enter a country with your motorcycle, that country wants to get uh, taxes, fees for the importation of the vehicle. However, that's a bit of a problem because if they want the taxes from you and you had to pay the taxes in a country like Egypt, where the import duty for a motorcycle is 300% of the value of the bike, that's a problem. If you've got yourself a $20,000 GS, you don't really want to give the Egyptian border crossing $60,000 in cash. That's probably a difficult thing to do. And then you have to trust them when you leave to hand you the $60,000. I don't think that's going to happen. So the Carnet came into being, I think, in the 20s, based out of Switzerland, for the purpose of guaranteeing to the country that you're entering that they have your money, and if you leave the vehicle in the country, they will pay the import duty. So it's a guarantee to the country that they will get their money. It's as simple as that. So you have to get a Carnet, and in order to get a Carnet, you have to post a bond or post a cash bond or buy an insurance system that will pay for the carnet. For instance, for North Americans, it's quite straightforward. U.S. and Canada, we go to the Canadian Automobile Association in Ottawa, and you'll talk to a lady named Suzanne Dennis. She's the carnet person for North Americans. And what she will want to know is how much is your bike worth and what countries are you going to? If you're going to Egypt, ah, 300%. Oh, you're going to Nicaragua, 10%. You're going to some other country, it's 5%, and so forth. Every country has a different importation duty that they require. She will then work out the value of your bike. You need to have the correct value of your bike. She's been around this game a long time. She gave us our carnet way back in 1987, so she knows what the values are. So give her the value of your bike. She'll work out the duties that it's going to be and tell you, okay, you've got your value because worth this much. <clears throat> You're going to these countries. This is what the carnet is going to cost. You can post a bond and you can do it through your bank. And the bank has, gives them a guarantee. And the Automobile Association has basically their money, their, their hands on the money. You can't touch the money until the carnet is released. Or you can buy insurance. And there's a fee to do the documents, which is, I think, about $300, if I remember rightly, to actually do the paperwork and make it all happen. And then the insurance fee varies depending on the value of the bike, but it's going to be in the $300 to $800 range, very roughly, for a carnet for a year. And make sure you understand that when you return with the bike, you clear the carnet by bringing the bike back to your home country. Importing it into your home country and getting the carnet stamped in your home country is the guarantee that the bike is not in Egypt because Egypt is known for claiming that the bike is there and it's not. So you have to make sure that you bring the bike back into your home country and get it stamped by the customs authorities, send the document back to Suzanne and she will clear the carnet and you get your money back, except for the fee. 
Let's just back up though. When you said about um, putting out the the money and setting up the carne to begin with, are you saying that if you're going into Egypt with uh, with this 300% import tax uh, that they'll want or they want guarantee for, are you saying that you're going to have to put that $60,000 in the bank and leave it there for the Automobile Association to have access to? There's two ways of doing it. One is, yes, that's correct. You can do it that and way. The other is the insurance. And the other is insurance. Now, when we went on our trip around the world, we had to get the carnet and we had to put up a cash bond because that was the only thing there was. There was no insurance. It was just put up the cash. That's it. And you don't leave until you put up the cash. Uh, and that was a big hit. It was very difficult. The only good thing about it is when you come home, guess what? There's actually some money left. Some money. <laughs> so yeah. you can reestablish. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice forced savings. Yes. So you're not destitute when you return. Yeah. But if you've got a new bike, it can be a lot of money. Um, our bike, unfortunately, yeah. was uh, a crash damage bike that fell off a truck on the way to the dealer in Alberta. And we got it for, I think it was $2,500. So our our carne that we had to pay the cash for was 7,500 bucks, which in 1987 was still a big chunk of money and really hurt, but it wasn't ridiculous. Like you could buy today, you can buy a brand new 2014 BMW 1200 GSA, $25,000. Now you're going to Egypt. That's a $75,000 bond. Wow. But who would do that? If insurance is available, why would you even bother? Why would you consider that? You got more money than you know what to do with. That'd be the only reason to do it. <laughs> and the insurance isn't cheap. So it would just be you and I that would do that then. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people look at the cost of the insurance and say, well, that's 800 bucks and it's gone. I can put up the bond and not lose anything. Okay. So, you know, if you can afford it, fine. Or if you're riding something that's really cheap, you know, you could have a Honda C90 and its value is 300 bucks. Okay. Not a problem. I think I can put $900 in the bank for my carnet. Right. Well, that's one point I wanted to talk about with the carnet is that a lot of people have mentioned to me that when they've got their carnet, they had to consider the what vehicle they wanted to take. And they, they didn't necessarily drive a very expensive vehicle just for that very reason. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, to consider that. If you're going to do it, think about what vehicle you're going to take in that sense, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yes. Um, and a lot of travelers are on old ratty bikes because cheap carnet. Now, it's very important to understand, you, it depends on where you're going. Because like I said, Egypt is 300%. In fact, I think I've actually gone up to 400% because Egypt has made so many claims that they charge an extra uh, chunk on top just to deal with the hassle of Egypt. So it's higher. But if you're going to South America, for instance, you don't need a carnet at all. North and South America, no carnet. Africa, carnet. Russia, carnet. Australia, carnet. So it varies. You have to figure out where it is you're going to go. And sometimes people will adjust their route because, oh, that country's really expensive for a carne, so I'm not going to go there. And they only do countries that are under 50% on the carne, and then it's no big deal. It's quite a bit cheaper. So it just depends on where you want to go. Having said that, it's really important to make sure that you don't have a very single route. You want to include countries on either side of your route because stuff happens, things go wrong, and suddenly a, a country closes its border. I mean, think of if you were planning to go through the Ukraine, and your only route was through the Ukraine and your carnet didn't allow you to go to the countries on either side of it. So you had to go through and all of a sudden Ukraine is in bad shape. You don't want to go there, but you can't because your carnet doesn't allow you to go around. So you have to fly over. That's a big extra expense that you weren't planning on. 
So you want to really work with Suzanne and make sure that you've got as many countries as you can at an appropriate uh, carnet rate to make sure that you have some flexibility on your route. Things change, you change your mind, you change your route, things happen. So we've talked about the perfect uh, scenario. You take your bike, you ride it through and you bring it back out. What happens if it doesn't come back out? Ah. <laughs> what happens if it crashes, if it gets wrecked, if somebody hits it, somebody steals it, even worse, because, you know, nothing to do with you. You wake up in the morning and it's gone. Then what happens? Okay, first off, if the bike is stolen, you have to go to the police immediately and make a report and make sure that the hotel you're staying at or whatever, everybody is happy that it really was stolen because I won't mention any names, but certain vehicles have occasionally been stolen that weren't. And unless you can prove comfortably to the police that it was really stolen, you've got a problem. So don't plan on selling your bike in the country and say that it was stolen. It has to be pretty clearly stolen and the police have to be happy with that. They will then talk to the customs officials and give you appropriate documentation. Yes, we believe it was stolen. We're happy it was stolen. It's not a problem. And then the customs guys will stamp your documents before you leave the country that it was stolen and we're comfortable with that. And then you're okay. Oh, that's great. That's good news. Yeah. If they're not okay, you leave the country without the bike. And some countries, they also stamp your passport with that there's a motorcycle with you and you can't leave at all. You've got a real problem. So you need to be really careful that you talk to the police and that everything's documented and that everything's okay. But if you can't prove that it was stolen, it's definitely a problem. Getting out of the country can be one problem. When you get home, it's another problem because the bike didn't return home. Therefore, that country can legitimately claim against the carnet and they get the money. If you put up a bond, they get the money, it's gone, you lose. If it's insurance, well, okay, that's what insurance is for. You're covered, but it's still a real hassle. And getting another carnet might be difficult. So what if it gets wrecked? If it's wrecked, not a problem. The vehicle is there. The police look at it. They do a police report. They talk to customs. Job done. Taken care of. Um, they might even, police have been known to know somebody who can dispose of the wreckage for you at a reasonable fee. Any other things we should consider or should be considering when we're thinking of getting a carne? No, that's really about it. Keep the value of the bike down as much as possible. Keep it simple. Um, the important thing is when you're actually using the carne and you're entering a country that requires a carne is to really understand how it works. It's very simple, but very often the border crossing guys haven't got a clue. They don't see them enough. They don't use them enough. Um, it's new on the job. I mean, we went into Argentina at a time when they did require the carne. And the guys at the border, when we came in at the port, they had no idea how to do it. It took us a day to get the right person who had heard about a carnet and sort of knew what it was and get him to stamp it properly in so he could enter the country. You know, they knew they needed it, but that was as far as they got. And um, you need to understand how to work it. It's, it's quite straightforward. It's just a four-part form where the top left is your entry. The top right is your exit, the bottom left is their entry, and the bottom right is their exit. So it's just get the appropriate piece stamped correctly and the appropriate person keeps the right piece of paper. And that's it. It's not very complicated, but you need to understand it because I've seen them stamp immediately on the wrong place, wrong side. So just be careful. 
we have all this paperwork for crossing borders, including our carnet. What's the best idea or the best plan for storing very important paperwork? There's as many ideas on that and what's the best way to do it as there are people out there. Everybody does it in a different place. Um, the last place I would recommend you do it is in your top box. And that seems kind of strange because I know a lot of people like to put their paperwork and a laptop and camera in their top box because it's really easy, it's convenient. But you wouldn't believe how many stories I've heard of missing top boxes. Riding along, you come to a stop, you go, oh, top box is gone. They, they come off. The attachment methods are rarely really good unless you've actually bolted it on. All of the removable top boxes are susceptible to getting flung off. I've seen even bolted on ones literally rip the mounts into pieces and disappear down the cliff. So top box is the last place I would put anything valuable. Um, having said that, I like a tank bag for the important documents. Um, you can hang it on a string around your neck, put it in your riding jacket, but you got to be really careful. You don't put your jacket down somewhere that's going to be at risk of being stolen. There is no perfect place. There, there's no matter what you do, nothing's perfect. There's always a flaw with everything, even hanging it around your neck. Um, that mugger, he sees a string hanging around your neck. He wants what's on the end of it because he knows it's your valuables. It may only be paperwork and it's useless to him and he's just going to toss it in the bin a couple blocks down the street. But there's something, there might be something in there. There might be your money in there and he wants it. So nothing's perfect. Which brings me to the next question. How many copies should we have of our paperwork and should we bring originals, copies, both? You have to have the originals of everything. That's, that's number one. And I recommend burying that as far as you can. But lots of copies and copies that are like color photocopies of colored documents that look really good. Um, British Columbia driver's license. I photocopied mine and laminated it. It looked great. It, um, I think, it, yeah, I'm past the statute of limitations. I handed my photocopied driver's license to a California policeman once and he took it and he was good with it. Not a problem photocopied and laminated, modified registration document and took that and was happy with it. Not a problem. So hmm. if you're in some border in the middle of Africa, they don't know what your Canadian or American registration and driver's license is supposed to look like. It's probably whatever it is, even a good photocopy is better than what they've got. So it's good enough. And as long as the, shall we say, the spirit of the law is upheld. In other words, that's you, that's the correct birth date, that's your driver's license number, that's your country, that's your home address. The registration document shows the correct serial number for the bike and it's got your name on it and your name matches your driver's license and it matches your passport and all the numbers and things that matter are correct. It's all good. It all works. Everybody's happy. They see what they need to see. They get the information they need to get. That's what matters. The fact that it's the original fancy factory issued document really isn't critical. It's the spirit that matters. So use photocopies, have several copies. If you're heading for Central America, have 20 or 30 copies of everything because they go through copies like, like they were free. Of course, somebody's getting paid, but that's another story. In Africa, they really don't use copies. They don't care, except for, I think, one, I think Mali likes copies, but everybody else doesn't care. 
don't worry about it, but have enough copies that you can hand them out without worrying about it. And you can always get more copies in the next town anyway. So don't carry a hundred of them, but just carry enough. And you're not trying to pull a fast one with it. You're just trying to, to preserve your originals when you're handing them a photocopy. So really there should be no big deal. I imagine if they find out, they're just going to ask you for the original. Yeah. Yeah. They, they will occasionally say, I must see the original, but don't let it get too far out of your sight because that's the original. That's the one that matters. But uh, again, if you've got a good photocopy and very important when, you, when you're at home preparing to go and you're getting these copies, scan it so that you've got a good scanned version of it and put it on your website or your internet uh, Dropbox or something so that you have access to the original scan of that document and you can always reproduce it. Think of you've been robbed thoroughly and you're standing there in your underwear. Now what? Well, all you need to do is find an internet cafe, walk in, sign into your account, and print everything. You've got all your documents again. You've got copies of it. You can go to the embassy. You can get a new passport. You've got all your documentation. Yeah, although I would say you'd want something over your underwear first. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and have it in a couple of places, too, because things go wrong. Things get broken into. Accounts get hacked. Who knows? So have it in at least a couple of places just to make sure. I'm always reminded of uh, a guy who did a whole trip around South America. He spent a year in South America, and he was using an iPhone for storage of his photographs. And he also had an internet account with some photo storage place, and he figured he was in great shape. And then his iPhone died, and he got home, and he said, well, I got him on the internet and went to the internet account, and that company got out of business. And the only photos he had left... Mm were the small images. This is in the days when 640 by 480 screens were big. And he only had these little tiny photographs that he'd put on his website. And that was it. All his photographs were gone. So multiple storage places, multiple copies, backed everything up in several different places. Be really careful. It's really horrible to lose all that stuff. It's photographs, documents, whatever you're talking about. Lots of different storage places. Okay, well, that's wonderful, Grant. Thank you very much. That's a load of information for us and uh, certainly a lot of great things in there and some really, really sharp tips for people. Oh, you're welcome. I hope it helps people and it gets, we hope to see them out on the road and having a little bit of fun at the border crossing instead of nightmares. Thanks, Grant. You're welcome. Thank you. was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, the source for overland travel information and connection. The website is horizonsunlimited.com. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, we've got a former customs officer giving his insight into what they're looking for at the border and best practices for crossing. Stay with us. Hey, nothing is worse than cold feet while you're riding a motorcycle. And once they get cold, it's almost impossible to warm them up again. Now, part of that is because when your feet become cold, your body reduces blood flow to the skin, which kind of makes them feel colder. It does that to try and conserve heat. And when the adrenaline flows, it reduces blood flow to your extremities, which is your feet as well. Not to mention that your feet are out there exposed to the wind and the water down in your foot pegs. And it's not just the feet that get cold. You've probably noticed how cold your boots are after you pull your cold feet out of them. And to make matters worse, 
your feet are more prone to injury when they're cold and you're standing on your feet in some cases when you're riding an adventure bike. So who needs cold feet? Hey, the best defense is to keep your feet warm in the first place. And the most reliable way I've found in doing that is by having the best cold weather socks that money can buy. For me, that's Pearly's Possum Socks. I've tried all kinds of socks. These are the best socks that I've ever come across. Pearly's Possum Socks are made of a, a blend of natural fibers, merino wool, and possum fur. Two incredible fibers that not only keep your feet warmer, but they wick away moisture, and they have natural properties that discourage the growth of microbes. In other words, they don't stink even after you've worn them too long. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. IMS Products has a complete line of adventure motorcycle pegs for us riders. They've got everything from your smaller aggressive peg that uh, maybe a, a real hardcore racer uses right on up to your big wide platform styles that many adventure riders prefer. You know, a lot goes into the design of a foot peg. You do not want to just rush out and buy a foot peg on price ever. You want to get something that's made quality, that's made for your bike and made for your style of riding. And one of the the, the features of the IMS pegs is even just if you look at the teeth on the peg, they've got these the, a method where they use two smaller teeth in place of one tooth. And what that does is it gives you added traction and gives you less wear on your boot. That's just another one of those small design tactics used by IMS that helps them produce a superior peg. I run them on my bike. I absolutely love them. Check out what they've got, imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, be sure to throw a name in there. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. Border crossings can be full of tension, apprehension, and even fear. But with some understanding of what is involved and following some good advice, border crossings can run a whole lot smoother and, in many cases, add to your trip and add to your experience of the whole adventure. Peter Sweetser spent 20 years working as a customs agent in the UK. And during that time, he worked in all aspects of customs, including working alongside other customs agencies from around the world. For the last 10 years, he was working as a special investigator for anti-narcotic oils and international liaison teams. And back in 2000 and 2001, Peter and his wife, Michelle, drove their Land Rover Defender from London to Malaysia and then across the U.S. Peter now lives in the U.S. He is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society and spends his spare time teaching travelers best practices for international border crossings, as well as doing some consulting for international expeditions for their travel logistics. I'm Pete Sweetser. I live in Tampa, Florida, and I'm a former customs agent in the U.K. Um, now I work for Land Rover. Pete, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show and, and talking about this, because this is something that's um, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? For And I think you probably recognize that, working in the industry for so many years. Yeah, um, that's one of the reasons that we started doing the class at Overland Expo, was to take the mystery away from all of that uh, red tape that comes through. And um, it's important to, to teach people how to deal with the officialdom and how to get things straight before you actually get there, I think. You spend 
almost 20 years as a customs officer, all aspects, your last 10 years as a special investigator doing anti-narcotic oil and international liaison work. You did a round the world trip in, a, in an ex-Camel Trophy uh, Defender 110 in 2000, 2001 with your wife, Michelle. And also, I, I see you're, you're a, a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. So you've certainly found your way around as far as international travel goes on top of your customs experience. Yeah, it's, um, I guess that's one of the reasons that, again, it's, it's easier for me to explain stuff to people because I've been on both sides of the bench, if you like, and uh, traveled extensively and know what it's like to put together an expedition and know what it's like to have to deal with people that don't speak English or don't speak your language if you're not in English and, uh, you know, the stress that comes along with that. Well, you're also doing consulting work for expeditions. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, basically, again, it's the same thing. It's the, the people want uh, the the idea of traveling around the world or doing something um, difficult, if you like, um, but they don't know where to start. So uh, I get a few calls a year to help people and uh, try and point them in the right direction. And I've done some work with some of the ex-Camel guys as well, um, doing uh, planning for fairly big trips for pretty big company. So, um, it works out really nice. I keep my, keep my hand in, if you like, as far as, uh, what's required. Well, so as far as motorcycle travel goes, if you're planning a trip and you're thinking of crossing some borders and I guess it wouldn't matter whether you're crossing one or, or a number, um, where do we start? How, how do we start off and, you know, as far as getting it together? Well, the important thing is the research. Um, there's some really good resources out there. You know, the hub is really a big one. But uh, at the end of the day, you should also check the embassies, um, both the country that you're going to and your own embassy in that country. Um, because there are some peculiarities that perhaps people on the road um, may not even mention, like time changes, uh, where for example, coming out of Nepal into China, China, is, the whole country is on Beijing time. So you come out of Nepal and you've got basically an hour to drive the mountain road to get to the Chinese customs before they shut. <laughs> so those things are important to find out about. And, um, and also some of the more nuanced regulations. Um, I mean, we all know simple visa, passport, carne or temporary import permit, but there may be, you know, some special permits required coming out of like India into Burma, for example, go through Sikkim. There's, there's stuff that you really need to know about. And the, the best way to find out is the actual embassy. And that's, they're going to give you the right information just because one guy on a bike or a car got through by blagging his way through doesn't mean you're going to that's going to happen to you. You're going to be able to do that. You're going to need to know the right information and it helps you. Uh, you know, we like to say you've got to be persistent um, when you get to a border. So if you know the real regulations and the real rules, um, then it's a lot easier to not succumb to bribes or any nonsense, you know? Um, so yeah, that's where to start is really just basically contact a tourism organization, just a general consular office in your for your embassy in that country too. They'll give you some much more up-to-date information. And you mentioned the hub. That's for looking at people's experience. That's Horizons Unlimited. 
yeah, I mean, there is nothing better than the guy coming the other way down the road. And uh, usually these days there, I mean, when I was doing my trip, even though it's only a few years ago, um, you know, internet wasn't quite as um, prevalent as it is now, of course, everything's so easy. Um, but yeah, the guy coming the other way, he's going to be posting it on the hub or one of the other forums out there. And that that's the way to find out. There's a couple of Facebook uh, pages as well that I keep up with, uh, like the Pan Am Travelers or Overland in Asia, Overland in Africa. And they have guys out there right now and they're asking questions and, you know, you can, you can learn from them and their mistakes and, and if, if they make any. Are the border, in your experience, are, are the borders fairly consistent in the way they work? Because you mentioned there, just because one person gets through um, doesn't mean that everyone's going to get through. And I, and I think that sort of says that for a lot of things, even when you're looking at dangerous areas, one person can go through and say, oh, I made it fine, but it doesn't mean it's safe. But in, in your experience, are they operating the same or is it sort of, um, are some borders uh, completely different from one day to the next, depending on who's working? It depends on the nationality of the of the country going, but generally you've got to understand that customs agents are not there um, really for what everybody thinks they're there for with, you know, drugs and stuff. They're there to collect money for the government. That's their role as, as an excise gathering agency. And you're rocking up to the border and your motorbike with everything hanging off of it. That's, that's a cost to them. That's a taxable item that is going into their country. I mean, um, Egypt, South Africa, they got huge taxes on cars and motorbikes in India as well. Um, and that's what they're looking at. They're not looking at, you know, a disheveled guy who spent eight hours going through the Baluchi desert and it's full of dust. They're looking at how much that bike is, how much that car is and um, what the risk is to their revenue. And are you going to export it? Or are you going to try and sell it? So there's some more officious than others. Um, as with everything, it depends on the day, you know, it's, you get a good doctor one day, you get a good a good nurse one day, and sometimes there might be other issues. It's just the same as everybody. You know, we all have our good days and our bad days, but generally the rules are the same, uh, and it's protect the tax of the country that you're going into. And there's some countries that will actually aim to collect that tax, and if you don't pay, um, they'll turn off the lights of the embassies, <laughs> you know, and they'll start complaining to the, you know, World Bank. So it's some, for some countries, it's very, very important, that tax collection. And so you are, you are a heavy risk to them. So should you change your mindset as you're approaching the border? I mean, should your mindset be a certain way to sort of assist yourself getting through? Yeah, um, we, we, uh, we like to say that there's five P's when you're going up to a border. Uh, you have to be presentable. Obviously, that's a little harder on a motorbike. Um, but yeah, I mean, try, try to brush down your your jackets and stuff if you're on a bike and, you know, raise your, raise your visor as quick as you can and smile. So, you know, be presentable uh, is the first one. Prepare the night before, get all your stuff that you're going to need that you know about out of the deep storage places on your bike. Um, make sure that you've got the right amount of money already changed if you can. Um, be professional, make sure you know what you're going to do. Like I said, you've got to do the research first um, and that's going to make sure that you're aware of what's supposed to go on and it's not going to be a surprise. And don't forget, there's going to be kids and shouting at you for stuff and people asking you to change money and it's going to be complete chaos in some places. But if you're prepared and professional and know what you need, you can go up to the first proper officer and start 
getting on with it. And, and the other thing is to be patient. Don't ever get angry. Um, you know, you're a guest in their country and you really are a representative of your own country too. And you're almost a diplomat. So, you know, smile and, you know, just roll with it. Don't ever get mad about things. Uh, and then uh, the other one is be persistent. Keep going. You you know what you need to do. You know what it is. And, um, you know, you might just need to find the right guy that's going to help you. So just those five, again, I've got presentable, prepare, and then I have patience and persistent. I think I missed one. Yeah, professional. Be professional. Professional. Do they have to be in order? Well, no, not really. But, you know, obviously the first impression is the main thing with everything these days. And uh, presentable is the big thing. We used to have a, uh, like a, um, you know, you're usually traveling in T-shirts and jeans or shorts or something like that. But we'd have a, a fairly nice shirt and um to put on and khakis and we'd we basically had an embassy kit so we would pop into embassies and be look look the part and we'd usually wear that going up to a border we'd never turn up to a border just you know jeans and t-shirts and it sets the tone it sets the tone to the guy at the other side that you're there and you know what you're about and there's a lot to be said for that first 10 seconds of uh you know impression I think some people have the idea that if they go up looking grubby and disheveled, that they're somehow going to be treated with a, a softer hand entering. But clearly what you're saying is, I mean, they're going to look at the bike right away. I mean, and most people are riding very expensive bikes. They're going to look at the bike and know automatically. I mean, I guess any bike really in some countries is going to look like it's worth a fortune. So you're not going to get around that. No, you're not. I mean, a lot of countries, they have those cheap um, Chinese knockoff Honda things. And, uh, you know, you're rocking up there on a, GS 1200 or something and yeah, or a big Land Rover or a big Toyota, then that's probably more money than they've seen in their lifetime. And it's the same with everything. If you're dealing with somebody who looks like they don't wash, <laughs> you have a certain opinion of them. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, you've got to, you, as I said, you are representing your nation. So if you turn up there all disheveled and, you know, not washed in three days, I mean, sometimes that's unavoidable, but, um, make the effort, do a little bit, tidy up a little bit, and it'll go a long way. So we research before we go. We we try and learn the rules so we know what we're dealing with, and, and we have the five Ps. Anything else for getting it together? Well, attitude is the big one, isn't it? I mean, again, like I said, you've got to be patient, but definitely don't get angry. You you know, you're handing over, the. you've got to hand over the real documents at a border. It's a totally different than an inland checkpoint. Uh, you can get away with handing over, you know, international driver's permits as opposed to your real driving license and um, stuff like that. But at, at a border, you are going to have to hand over the real documents to somebody. So make sure that, uh, you know, you're confident and that you know what you're doing. Are there any problems by handi with handing over the real documents? I mean, people talk about uh, duplicating them all the time and using duplicates. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely duplicate everything. I mean, these days you can copy it, put it on your phone, but, um, you know, photocopies of stuff is always invaluable, particularly if it gets lost, you know, then you can go to the embassy and show them your real stuff and get it reissued. Um, but I would only ever hand over, you know, like the international driver's permit is actually a legal document, but it's not your real driver's license, right? Sure. So, so hand over that one to start with. Um, until you're confident that it's a real checkpoint. Um, but at the border, you've got 
really no choice. You're going to have to hand over your passport to the immigration officer. You're going to have to hand over the carnet um, to, uh, and maybe even vehicle documents of some description to the the guy getting the Trempe input permit. So you're going to have to hand over the real things at some point to somebody, and that will be at a border. Should you be worried about doing that? Not at the border, I don't think. Um, no, inland for sure, I would be a little more circumspect because there could be, um, you know, like in Mexico, there's all the the um, police checkpoints that they have and the federales and stuff, and that you can pretty much be sure that those are legitimate checkpoints. But in remote India, we we had a, a checkpoint, and it was it turned out to be a legitimate checkpoint, but it looked so hinky, it was ridiculous. We so we handed over copies of everything. You know, the guys are there, no uniform, bamboo pole across the the road. So you start with, you know, don't even hand over anything, (laughs) really. You don't have to, you know. Um, But yeah, just have them available. And and that's why I say be prepared uh, the night before going up to a legitimate border, get the real stuff out. Otherwise, just use the copies for everybody else. So once you've got your papers you need for each country and then you're off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah I mean, you've got to get the visas, of course. That's a different thing. Um, so you have to do all the research on whether you need a um, different type of visa. Like, for example, a 90-day visa in the U.S. might not work for you. You're going to have to actually get a proper um, visitor's visa, which will be valid for a year, the same as your car is. Um, so you have to look at that. Then multiple entry visas. Um have that already, all your vaccinations, make sure they're up to date. Um, some places need the yellow fever stuff as well, particularly been, if you've been in Africa. Um, so that's part of the research. Make sure you've got all of that stuff. The car pretty much is, is, I guess, fairly easy. The other stuff you might have to get on the road. From your experience working as a customs officer, what are the types of things that set off the bells and whistles? So you see the the rider come up with their motorcycle. And, and what are the types of things that would sort of jump out at you as, I mean, for anything that would cause them hassle or cause them to get flagged to be set aside for further inspection? Well, sometimes it's the, you know, where they've come from is a big thing. Which you can't help. Right. You can't help. But, you know, there are risks of people coming from certain places. So, you know, you're coming from Southeast Asia back to London, for example, then you have a number of different risks involved doing that route where there's, you know, human trafficking, there's drugs, there's money laundering in those sort of places. So there's, there's a lot of different things that, that the guys are going to be looking for based on where you've come from and, uh, and your demeanor when you turn up. And, And then again, that goes to be presentable and be be polite, be smiling and knowing what you're doing. What about dealing with bribes? You know, that comes up pretty much every single time I've done Expo. And I don't know that, I mean, I've been on, I've been on um, panels with Tiffany Coates, with Sam, with Lisa Thomas and Simon. And, uh, you know, um, we, I've even been on um, with Ted Simon and, I don't think any of us have said that we've paid a, a bribe ever. Um, and that's part of wh- how we try to, to do the classes is like, listen, you know, you just got to be, be yourself, be polite, just get on with it and have fun with it. You know, we even tell people, look, you know, you've got all these people at the border that have, 
asking for money and giving, you know, I'll change your money, I'll change your money. And hey, sometimes give them 20 bucks and have fun with it. You know, just make a, you know, it's not a big deal to lose 20 bucks in the overall scheme of things or 10 or something, but use it and have fun with it and and do change some money. You are going to get ripped off, but you know, at the end of the day, you might make out and it's all how good you are at negotiating, I guess. Uh, but sometimes it's, that's part of the travel is to have some fun with it, you know? And usually those guys that are asking for bribes, you sort of, you can tell and, and you can be patient. You say, Hey, no, I'm, I'll just wait here. Is that the only method? No, well, you could go a different border, couldn't you? Um, and there's places in Africa right now where there is, there's one particular place in Africa where, um, they've, they've been pretty nasty about, uh, trying to collect money that's not owed. And so the recommendation is to go through a different border. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, you know, if you've been on the road for any time at all, you'll know that particularly on a motorbike, you're going to be driving to the front of a queue of maybe a hundred trucks trying to get through the border. And, and that's where the customs guys are going to be collecting their money with those trucks and that, that normal trade. You're just a guy, you know, either some of them don't want to deal with you and that's why they make it hard. And some of them will just get you through as quick as they can because they got a hundred trucks waiting. Um, so yeah, it's, and, and they'll want, maybe, maybe they'll ask for a bribe to get you through faster. Who knows? But I never, ever had a problem with bribes. And I don't think most of the pretty advanced, uh, you know, people that we all read about every day have really done it either. And that's where your research pays off. Cause you mentioned the uh, border crossing that's sort of got a reputation right now as being a difficult one to get across without being harassed to pay money that you don't owe and shouldn't pay. That's again, if you researched in advance, you'd probably find on the hub, people will be talking about that. And the, the grapevine brings out the news and then pick another border. Yeah, exactly. Why, why make life difficult for yourself? Right. Um, is there anything else as far as, as um, best practices or, or even um, crossing the border that we should know? Yeah. Um, one thing that you should be aware of is the um, monetary uh, requirements. So obviously, we're pretty much worldwide, it's $10,000 um, is the proceeds of crime, effectively. Um, so... If you have monetary funds, which is, you know, not only your credit card, but it's, you know, checks, cash itself, or, um, you know, if you still can get them, the old uh, bank checks that they, traveler's checks, mm-hmm. um, don't try stuffing them all over the place. You know, I I, I did a, uh, a thing at the Royal Geographical Society and somebody said they were going to cut a hole in their chassis and hide all their money and stuff in that. Well, once you start changing the frame of your motor car or your motorbike, then, then they're going to start looking more. You know, we had a safe in our car it was a little toughy box. Um, we sort of, it, it was fairly easy to get to. That's why we kept our, uh, passports and carnet and money and a spare credit card. And only one border actually found it. And it wasn't really that hidden. And so, you know, that's, that's the thing to do would be to, um, you know, use a, use a safe, do something like that rather than stuffing stuff into your chassis. You said about the $10,000, you're saying that if you, you exceed that in cash, that it's a crime? 
If you exceed that, yes, they can take it off you as the proceeds of crime or drug money laundering, basically, the money laundering regulations. Mm. So, And they take the full yeah. amount then? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And if it's 999,000, then they're probably still going to do it because it's, <laughs> you know, it's like really seriously. <laughs> so $10,000 in, in, I guess, any currencies, that's, that's a common figure. Yeah, it's pretty much the main figure. Yeah. Mm. And, and you're saying, um, so what about, like, I mean, would you keep all your money in one spot? Because I think everything we've heard on this show to date has been, you know, be careful to spread your stuff out a little bit, you know, tuck stuff away. Do you think that doesn't work? No, no. I think that's on a motorbike. That's a good idea. You know, you don't want everything in one place for sure. Um, you know, I mean, these days you can pretty much get cash as you go on, a, you know, the ATMs are pretty much everywhere these days. So it's not quite as it, it was when perhaps Ted Simon was driving around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know, I know motorbikes, it's a little different, you know, you do put stuff down the tubes here and there, but you know, in a car, it's not so much. We used to have a, like a giveaway wallet with a hundred bucks in it, you know, like just as a day to day thing. And most everything else was out of the way and hidden. And that's what I would recommend is have, have something that you can afford to lose and have everything else all over the place. Right. So your traveler's wallet in your pocket sort of thing. That's the first thing that comes out. That's got your things you can dispose of, your credit cards that are expired. Um, maybe a driver's license is copied or expired, those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, there's theft all over the place, isn't there? There's even theft down the street here. You know, it's not, you know, it's not exclusive to traveling. So, you know, you've got to be a little more aware and just make sure that you're, you're safe. You mentioned the modifications and how that's going to um, get them to look further. I guess the same thing with a bike. I mean, if, if you don't hide something really, really well and it's found, it's clear you're hiding things and that's just going to spur on more. Yes, exactly. So that is that is a danger of hiding stuff, isn't it? It's something you have to it contemplate. Is. Yeah, and it's again, it's all about how you present yourself and um, whether they're going to think you are hiding stuff around. You got to be honestly. There's no substitute for being open and honest with with the people involved. If you are trying to do something illicit, then you know, hey, you get caught, you get caught. If they ask you how much money you're bringing into the country, would you recommend them telling all your money, even the hidden stuff? No, I, I, these days they don't generally ask that. There's very few monetary um, controls these days. It used to be all the time. And of course, you know, that's something that that was a whole different ball game. But I would, I don't think in, in, the, in the year that we were away and the trips I've done since that I've really been asked how much money I've had in my bag and stuff. And to me, that would, these days, that would be an alarming question as far as why you want to know that information, you know, because it's not required in a lot of places, in most places. And again, that's down to research. Um, But yeah, why, why, why do you want to know that? And again, I think that goes back to what you said from the start, which I think is excellent. And if you do your research in advance and know what the border crossing is supposed to be asking, what what you're actually doing there, then at least you can deal with that when it comes up in an appropriate way rather than just blurting something out. Yeah. And blurting something out (laughs) is never a good thing because it leads to um, opening up a can of worms, really, doesn't it? Just answer the question. Be polite. Answer the question. Don't give more than necessary. Uh, and don't start rambling away because the more you do that, the more 
you're going to create suspicion, even if there isn't anything there. I think a common thing to do is tell somebody about your travels. You know, if you, you meet them, you say, oh, I've come from here. That's probably a mistake, isn't it? I mean, are, are you better off to keep your conversations to maybe sort of more common things that are, I don't know, asking about their country, et cetera, rather than talking about yourself? Yeah, unless they ask you. I mean, obviously they have your passport in front of them and they know where you've been and they're going to ask you, you know, hey, what? how was Syria? You know, when did you go through there and all that sort of stuff? You know, mm-hmm. if, they, if it's in your passport, they can read about it. Um, and don't forget, there's all those um, countries where, oh, you don't want to go into that country. Those are terrible people because the, the borders and it's like the English and French have that thing, you know, going on. And there's always that common misbelief that the next countries, the terrible guys, particularly in Africa, they'll tell you, you know, and even we drove through from Hungary to Romania and it was like, oh yeah, the Romanians are terrible, you know, and the the Romanians would say the Hungarians are terrible. So, you know, it's one of those things. They're nice. And they're both really great. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, um, if you start, if you start getting engaged in that, then, then that's never going to go well. Um, it's always better to learn a little bit of their language, say hello and, and thank you and stuff before you, you know, learn for a couple of days what those sort of things are and be polite. I mean, we sat at the Syrian border drinking tea um, because we, we were just like, you know, had a few words and, you know, salam alaikum and all that sort of stuff. And um, we hung out and it was great. Who would have thought you'd sit at a border and be drinking tea with the agents, right? Yeah. And actually be be happy to do that. Um, we had lunch with the guys on the Pakistan border too. So those guys, you know, yeah, definitely don't run your mouth off, but engage in polite conversation. You never know where it's going to lead. Pete, do you have uh, any closing comments, uh, tips, advice for motorcycle travelers looking to cross borders? I think at the end of the day, you've just got to be you know, like I said, the first thing to do, particularly on a motorbike is raise your visor and, 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 or take your helmet off if you can, as fast as you can, so that you can be that guy that, that it's a humanization of, of something rather than, you know, when you've got your helmet on, you aren't, you aren't yourself, are you? You're, you're just a, a hidden person behind a mask almost. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, definitely do all the homework and present yourself in a, in a polite professional manner and, um, and have fun with it and you'll be, you'll be fine. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing this information with us. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Peter Sweetser, former customs agent. Now we've got links in the show notes and more, of course, as we always do on our website at adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Wow. 
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. Hey, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. If you're not doing it already, we would love it if you would drop by our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox, whatever, a cool Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. That's the other show that we do. It's a monthly show, all available at our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much once again for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ha!